Okay, uh, I'd like to welcome today to our podcast, uh, Paola Pearson, who is an attorney with Anna Paul Weiss in Philadelphia. Uh, she focuses on catastrophic injuries and mass torts and has also been appointed to the Plaintiff's Executive Committee for the Elmeron MDL. So Paola, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Eric, happy to be here. Good. So uh, if you don't mind, I want to just start off kind of with your journey into become a becoming a lawyer. Uh, it sounds like it was interesting and kind of a series of uh, events that, that led you down this path. Do you mind telling our audience how that happened? Sure. Um, it was, I, I would say, a pretty unconventional path. Um, I had no idea that I wanted to be a lawyer and actually hadn't even crossed my mind my entire life. Um, until later on, actually, after I finished college with a journalism degree, originally intending to be a news reporter, um, decided not to pursue that route. Um, I ended up in law school and I was in my um, third year of law school and I was discussing with some of the other students that we were still looking for opportunities, specifically on the plaintiff side. Um, at that point, I had been a secretary, a legal secretary at a personal injury firm and was just fascinated by the practice and thought that it was incredibly entertaining in terms of the investigation and prosecution of civil cases. Um, you know, people who've been grievously injured by defective medical devices and consumer products. I just found it fascinating. Um, I was in a class my 3L year um, discussing how I was still looking for a job with a few of my classmates. My professor overheard us, invited us to her house for a weekend, you know, sort of impromptu networking event. Um, she then introduced me to an attorney uh, who's been practicing in Philly for some time at a pretty large plaintiff's firm who invited me to a networking event. And I remember that day it was raining, it was miserable out. I just, you know, wasn't in the mood for it. Um, but fortunately persuaded myself to go and I ended up meeting um, my now boss, who's a partner at this firm. And lo and behold, here I am seven years later. So the original intent was to become a journalist. Now, was it, was it journalism uh, in general or politics? What was your original focus on? I think it was journalism in general. Um, I, you know, what, what fascinated me was always just, I like investigations. I like looking into, looking deeper behind the scenes when things go on. Um, and it was always my intent to pursue that. Uh, you know, when I realized that starting off in the journalism world meant that you likely had to move to small, sort of smaller markets um, throughout the country where you maybe necessarily didn't want to live. I was like, hmm, I'm not so sure that's for me. Um, but I'm, I'm glad I ended up on the path that I now I'm on. And investigative journalism is probably a very close parallel to what you're doing now, because you're really trying to uncover things. You probably have a few different methods that you have to use legally, but the same type of process to find out what the defendant might be trying to hide from the light of day. It's the same type of process. And it's it's ironic to me, um, you know, a lot of what I would be doing as an investigative journalist is exactly what I feel that I'm doing as an attorney, just for a different purpose. Um, but I do think that all the same skill sets transferred over very well. And then you have, you know, one other really positive that comes out of this. So in journalism, you know, you can get your name out there. There's, you know, those Pulitzer Prizes. But here you're working with individuals who've been harmed by a product or a company, which 
has kind of a different personal effect, I'm sure. Have you had some instances where you've worked on cases and able to get some justice for some of your clients? We have, and I think the first thing that comes to mind, honestly, um, a couple of years ago, we worked on a case involving a, a defective device used in open heart surgery that unfortunately was causing very severe bacterial infections. And they were delayed infections, meaning someone was exposed to this bacteria from this machine, four or five years would pass before they actually became symptomatic and developed an infection. So no one was putting two and two together to say that this infection could have come from this device um, years earlier. So that was to me, one of the sort of most influential points in my career because I met a lot of families who had family members that passed away after horrible, horrible illnesses that lasted years. Um, you know, they had to take antibiotics that often would cause them to lose their hearing. They would lose their vision. They would develop kidney failure. They would develop liver failure. So it was very rewarding, I think, to see a case like that from the very beginning to the point of, you know, drafting the complaint and, you know, researching the FDA website to look at warning letters that the FDA had issued to this company and just piecing together all those puzzle pieces from, from the very beginning all the way to the end, which fortunately was a settlement, um, and being able to say to those families, you know, we've been able to hold this company responsible for what happened to your loved one. Now, in this case, which, which is really one of the biggest pieces of any case like that, is when, they, when did the company know? And was there some type of cover-up? So can you dive into just a little bit of the particulars on this case? Did you said it took years for the patients to know, but did the company know sooner? There were indicators that the company may have known sooner. Um, there were actually some scientists and some researchers overseas in Europe that had been looking into it. And they were the first ones to put two and two together to say, oh, I have seven patients that have this very unique infection. And the only thing they have in common is that they all had open heart surgery using this particular device. Um, and so once that once that came to light, um, you know, it was, it was brought to the company's attention and there was, you know, and there were indications, I will say that the company knew sooner than they let on to the public that there was a problem there. Right. Well, that kind of leads into uh, the next topic I wanted to address, which would be the, the Elmeron MDL. Uh, you had mentioned one of the uh, negative effects of the, the uh, that device was was blindness, which is the same type of thing that we're seeing here with with Elmron. You mind just giving a quick overview of the the MDL and for people who might not be as familiar with it because it's a little bit newer of a mass tort. Sure. So this is um, yeah, like you said, a relatively new mass tort. The MDL was created in December of 2020. Um, at that time, there were about 40 to 60 cases that were transferred to the District of New Jersey. The cases are all in front of Judge Martinotti, who's an excellent judge with ample MDL experience. Um, for those who may not know much about Elmron itself, um, Elmron was approved by the FDA in 1996. Um, it is a prescription drug used to treat interstitial cystitis, um, which is painful bladder syndrome, um, mostly women, and it just it happens to be the case that mostly women suffer from interstitial cystitis. Um, so most of the plaintiffs in the case happen to be female. 
Um, the issue with Elmron and you know, the, the literature started being published around November of 2018, um, but since then it has come in, in troves. I mean, there have been, to this point, there have been a total, I think of over 30 different um, articles, medical journals, case reports, all leading to the same conclusion, uh, which is that long-term Elmron use um, and it, you can define long-term differently, but you know, I would say at least three years or longer. Um, and I'm talking daily use. The, the average um, dose is either two or three times a day at 100 milligrams. So chronic exposure to this drug has been linked to a very unique signature injury. It's called pigmentary maculopathy. And what it does is there is a layer in the back of your eye called a retina. Um, which I'm sure everyone's familiar with, but it, it processes light, um, reflects light in the back of the back layer of the eye. And Elmron is causing damage to the retina layer and eventually vision loss that can progress even after you stop taking the drug. And these are, you know, it, it's, it's a very interesting litigation and, and the injuries that you're seeing are very significant in many cases. I've, I've read a little bit on this, it seems like, so this drug has been around for quite a while. And I think you said there's around 30 or 40 cases right now. Do you see the number of you know, potential cases out there, potential meaning people who've been taking it for a while and have not seen symptoms or people who've got the sim symptoms and have not related it to the drug yet, which is one of the biggest things with the mass tort is bringing awareness that this cancer, this eye disease, this whatever the negative effect is actually linked to a drug or device that you've been using. So I'm glad that you asked that because at the time that we, at the time that the MDL was formed, there were about 40 to 60 cases, but now it's closer to 200. And I do think that the awareness about the link between this drug and this vision problem is spreading, but it's spreading very slowly. So yes, I do believe there are a lot of undiagnosed cases out there. Um, and, and the interesting thing is, again, you know, first literature published around the end of 2018, there are a fair amount of ophthalmologists and retina specialists that are out there that are not familiar with this yet. And if they know about it, um, they don't exactly know what the sort of red flags are, what the clinical indicators would be when they're evaluating a patient. So what we're finding is there are many patients who go and, and get examined, you know, they say, I've got these problems with my eyes. And, and usually what you'll see is blurry vision, um, difficulty with light adaptation, basically extreme light sensitivity. I mean, I've talked to many clients who tell me that um, they have to wear sunglasses inside their house, or if they're walking and all of a sudden there's a shift from a shaded area to a bright area, they become completely disoriented and they fall and they just have difficulty adapting to that. Um, difficulty reading, things like this. So they may go to the doctor and ask for an evaluation. And what has happened up to this point is they're misdiagnosed. And the misdiagnosis is actually as macular degeneration, which is a very common age-related um, loss of vision that affects thousands of Americans, you know, once they enter their 60s or 70s. So there are a fair amount of cases where there was a misdiagnosis and now we're trying to figure out, was it in fact Elmeron toxicity or was it actually macular degeneration? And there are a limited amount of doctors that are out there um, that are able to make that distinction. 
Now, is is that a conclusive test where where they're 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 doing some type of a scientific test, or is it more of an eye test where you're 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 trying to find out if somebody's light says light sensitivity is to a certain level. I've had a lot of eye issues myself, so I've, I've been been through these types of tests. And is it definitive when they go in for these eye tests or how are those done? So there are two specific eye tests that we're telling our clients to get if they are having these symptoms and they took Elmeron for a while and they're wondering what's going on here. Uh, one is called an OCT, which stands for optical coherence tomography. And the other one is called fundus autofluorescence. Um, they're both doing the same thing. They're taking images of the back of the eye and they're looking at the retina layer and they're looking for damage to the retina layer. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the things, you know, and I've talked about this extensively with an expert that we're working with is, you know, how do you differentiate between pentacin polysulfate sodium toxicity, which is Elmeron toxicity, or macular degeneration? And he's told us, um, you know, a few things that I think are key, which is that macular degeneration um, as an age-related condition can progress unevenly. And you may have one eye where the vision is significantly worse than the other, and that's normal. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas in Elmeron, you will usually see um, a symmetrical deterioration, meaning both of the eyes will be suffering from the same symptoms and be more or less um, equally affected since the drug is in the bloodstream and therefore it's affecting both of the retinas evenly. Right. And from what I understand, Elmeron is still being sold. It hasn't been taken off the shelves yet. It is still being sold. Um, I will add um, the company that manufactures Elmeron did add a warning to the label in June of 2020. Okay. Um, unfortunately for a lot of our clients, that, that warning came too late to make a difference. Many of them had started taking the drug in the late 90s, um, took it for 15, 20 plus years and are just now coming to learn about this problem. So does that mean that anybody who was diagnosed after June is, might not qualify for the MDL or is that still being discussed? Well, I think if you're talking about a diagnosis versus use of the drug, there's a big difference. If they were diagnosed after June, but they took the drug from say the year 2000 to the year 2015, they definitely still have a claim. The fact that a warning was added after they had already been exposed to this drug wouldn't you know, wouldn't change our assessment there. Um, but for someone who, you know, started taking Almiron after the warning was added to the label, I think that's a different question. Right. Now, the uh, Bellwether trials have not started yet. Uh, I'm, I'm sure this you and, and the rest of the, the team uh, executive committee and other people on the plaintiff steering committee are putting things together. Do you see kind of a smoking gun yet? Do you see evidence that because uh, it, it's Janssen Pharmaceuticals, right? It's their drug that they knew before, or is this, are you still more in the beginning of this process? I think right now we're at the beginning of the process. Um, we're heavy into the document review, um, you know, in terms of not just Janssen Pharmaceuticals, but there were a couple of other companies that were involved in the development of the drug, um, whether they were holders of the new drug application that was submitted to the FDA or they were trademark holders. Um, we're in the process right now of diving through all of that to answer exactly those questions, which is, we, you know, we know the literature started being published in November of 2018, but the key is finding out what these companies knew and exactly when they knew it. Right. So if there's law firms out there and, you know, our audience is primarily lawyers that are interested in El Moran, 
what would you kind of give them as, as some guidance uh, if they're going to try to help bring in some of these cases? Because obviously we need to create awareness about this. Uh, and then we also want to make sure that, that the people who are coming in are qualified. Obviously, these eye tests you're talking about are going to be a big part of that. Any advice that you could give to a law firm? Yeah, what I would say to them is, you know, keep an eye out um, for clients who are reporting some of the symptoms, vision symptoms that I just described, um, specifically sensitivity to light, blurry vision, um, difficulty reading, things like that, um, who've taken Elmeron for a long time. And again, that would be at least three years. But frankly, most people that take Elmeron are when they're prescribed it, they're told you're going to be taking this for your entire life. Um, and most of the people that we see have taken it anywhere from seven years to 20 plus years. Um, and that, that's just the average. Um, so if they have these symptoms, they have long-term Elmeron use, um, you know, definitely that's a case that a firm like ours would be interested in looking at. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, as you mentioned earlier, um, yes, there are a lot of undiagnosed cases out there because this is a relatively new signature injury. Um, so for clients who are not yet diagnosed, what we're telling them is you should go to an ophthalmologist or a retina specialist, ask for one of these two very specific tests, either the OCT or the fundus autofluorescence, and then we'll go ahead and order the medical records and take a deep dive into them and see exactly what's going on. Right. And, and you mentioned this primarily affects women. I, I think I read a stat that it's around 70%. I, I don't know if that's correct still. Is there any other demographic issue, like age-wise? Uh, I, I would assume someone who's having these bladder issues, maybe that's a little bit later in life, and then you need the five to 10 years of use. So are we looking for a, a pool of people that are in their 50s, 60s? That's generally what we're seeing. Um, it, it seems to be the case that most women who are diagnosed with interstitial cystitis, the diagnosis comes sometime in their 30s or 40s. Mm -hmm. um, and then if they're prescribed Elmeron, they would take it anywhere from you know, 5, 10, 15 years. So you're exactly spot on. Most of the clients that we see are female and they're in somewhere between their 50s and their 70s. Okay. And if, if someone uh, sees this and, and has a loved one that's experiencing this, what would you suggest for them to find out more information or, or to contact you to, to see if they do have a case? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's something, um, you know, we're, um, I talk to people every day that um, are facing exactly that dilemma, which is, you know, I've got these issues. I, I don't know what's causing it. What do I do next? Um, so we would be very happy to speak to them and kind of help guide them to get to some sort of answer and see what's going on. Right, and do you, what do you see as the next major step in the MDL? Is there, is there trials that are gonna be put on the books pretty soon as far as nailing down a date or what's the next major step? Yeah, we're at the point right now of pinning down trial dates for the first potential bellwether cases. Um, I think right now um, there's some of the sort of administrative stuff that happens at the beginning of the MDL in terms of case management orders and things like that. Um, that's all very much underway. Um, as I mentioned, we're, we're deep into the document review right now. Um, and we're in the process of getting a bunch of corporate depositions scheduled um, on some sort of preliminary topics. And then, you know, as we get further into the document review, we'll be taking more substantive depositions. Right. Well, I think that's a, a very comprehensive overview on Elmeron. Is there anything else that you're currently working on or, or projects uh, mass tort wise or, or other that, 
uh, you can shed some light on? Um, I think in, in terms of mass sorts, that's the main thing that um, I'm working on. I know, you know, others in my firm um, were very heavy into the mass tort world, um, mm -hmm. are heavily involved in, in other MDLs such as Zantac, uh, PPI, and a handful of others. Um, but that is, that's the, the main thing going on right now. It's the main act. Yeah, I'm sure your hands are pretty full with, with all the Elmeron stuff you're dealing with. Right. I mean, there are, you know, in addition to um, MDL work, we also do individual, um, you know, what we call binary um, plaintiff work as well. So I am working on some other interesting cases, but in terms of MDLs, it's Elmeron. Okay. Well, I want to thank you, number one, for, for joining me. Um, we're going to send out this to, to our audience and hopefully people who were kind of on the periphery of Elmeron now have a little bit more information to go off of. Because uh, as we know, with this type of litigation, it's really a team effort between the, the lawyers trying to go out and find people who've really truly been affected by this and then putting those people into the right hands who are kind of at ground zero for where this litigation is at now and, and where it's going to be going. Um, what would be a, a time as far as uh, an, an update where you, so you, obviously you said they're talking about some of these trials that are beginning, going to be coming up. Do you see on the forecast any, you know, what I mean is major changes where a month or two from now, is it going to be possible that something new is discovered about this, whether it's what Jansen knew and when, or is, is that just too hard to predict? Uh, the timeline is probably hard to predict, but I'm certain that so at some point within the next few months, um, we'll, we'll get our hands on some more information that'll tell us all of that. Okay, excellent. Well, we'll hope to get an update from you when that happens. Um, but in, until then, thank you very much for joining me. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you for having me. All right.